What's up, good people? Welcome back to the Holy Shit Pod. Today, we are bringing you a Holy Shit mashup with Theo Lab's newest podcast, Healing Jephthah's Daughters, with Lisa M. Weaver. So stay tuned for a very special word of pod for the people of pod, featuring Lisa and two of her closest friends. But before we get into that, Katie and I have a few church announcements for your listening pleasure. Sam is out today. I'll explain that in just one moment. But for now, you know what time it is. So let's get into it. Hallelujah. God, we give you praise today. Yes. Ah, come on, Katie. Come on, give him the fruit of your lips. <laughs> give him the fruitiness of your lips. Praise the Lord. Ah, come on. I knew that if we stayed with this thing long enough, you would most certainly start to get the Holy Ghost. I'm starting to see evidence. Last time you had the evidence of speaking in tongues. Huh? Shut up. <laughs> you know, I'm working on that. I mean, I think it's supposed to be a gift, though, isn't it? It's not like something that you create. I mean, that's what I've heard. We don't believe that. We believe that you'd have to practice it. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Good morning, good morning, and welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for all the saints and especially the ain'ts. This is the day the Creator has made. Let us dance and be hella queer in it. <laughs> I'm liking this new liturgy, but when you're going to do that, you're going to need to write it down. I'm Presbyterian, so like I don't... Like write down where you should start dancing? No, the response. Oh, I understand. I mean, I understood when I was supposed to start dancing, thankfully. So let's get right into it. Today's first announcement comes to you courtesy of the Adam, Steve, Eve, and Yvette ministry. Last night, they hosted a Pray the Straight Away service, and they want you to know that you too can pray that heterosexual demon out of your life with prayer, fasting, and faith. You can be delivered from the chains of heteroaggression and bigotry. If you don't believe us, look to your left. Look to your right. Then look back at me. Do you see Sam White? Oh, Shatai. <laughs> we stand here as living testimonies that if you just believe the very gates of that straight prison you've been wallowing in will burst open and you can run out with your hands up just like Paul and Silas. My God, on today. Um, you know, I was thinking, and at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. <laughs> I feel like that, take, that takes on a whole new meaning if you're praying this straight away. <laughs> <laughs> what were they doing? Yes, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and at midnight, Paul couldn't stop saying yes. yes. And Silas couldn't stop saying, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. This, we're going to almost have to make this double explicit. I don't know if that's... <laughs> this is not that's double explicit. I haven't been graphic and described what they were doing. Correct. That's true. I could. No, no, no. Thank you. No. In case y'all haven't noticed already, Sam White's voice is missing from the podcast. The gay ministry did say they wanted to pray it out. And so Sam, I don't know what happened to him. He woke up this morning and said he was like (laughs) sick beyond measure and couldn't (laughs) sign on to record with us. And I was like, it must have been the Adam, Steve, even event ministry. It was the Holy Spirit. My God. Okay. Next announcement. (laughs) Are you ready for the hot boy summer? I am. (laughs) As we head into a second pandemic summer, I'm feeling a little more like a Republican this go around. I'm walking around with my mask off, eating at restaurants, hanging out inside of the homes of my friends. And I just don't even give a fuck about the pandemic. COVID-19? What? What pandemic? Make summer great again, bitches. (laughs) Shit. 
And meanwhile, I'm the only person wearing a mask anywhere that I go. Katie's like standing outside alone, 25 feet away from everyone with a mask and a face shield and a hazmat suit. With a vaccine. Right, with a vaccine, right. I will say that I have... Um, I have finally realized I could probably be outside without a mask. And so I have done that more often, but I have one with me and feel only slightly guilty. But inside, I have to know you real well. I mean, this is a hard shift. Mm -hmm. Like we spent the last year telling everybody mask up, mask up, mask up. And it wasn't until we were almost at the point of not needing masks anymore that people started wearing them. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, some people started wearing them. I mean, but numbers have gone down as... I mean, there it was like 55 in our county or 50 in the areas around us per 100,000, which is remarkable considering it was like over 500 at some point in the winter. Last year this time, health officials were begging us not to celebrate Memorial Day with our friends and family members. There were stay-at-home orders being instituted and extended and in some states being disregarded and ignored altogether. But this summer, things are... I think really different. I mean, Joe Biden's like, fuck your mask. Go outside and hang out, have fun. Hell, go into the house if you want to, because we want to make sure everyone gets COVID-19 who's not going to get vaccinated. I mean, that's my story. I still say the CDC wants everyone to be infected. They're like, herd immunity is the goal. And if the Republicans aren't going to get vaccinated, just put them all in the same room at a Trump rally and let them all die. Or just get COVID-19. They don't have to die. I feel like Sam just rose up in me. Oh, God, shut up. I need the gay ministry to come pray that spirit out on me again. I'm looking at Georgia cases are actually DeKalb County right now. The seven-day average from, say, two months ago was 122. A month ago, 73. And we're already down to like 33 cases a day here in DeKalb County. That's in Georgia? That's in DeKalb County. And we're following pretty much uh, Georgia completely. For Georgia overall, it's 451 now. It was almost 975 a month ago, and it was over 1,000 uh, two months ago. So that's, it's cut more than in half, maybe 60%, which is astonishingly remarkable. But for somebody like me who doesn't trust much of anything, I keep waiting for the spike, but it, but it keeps going down. And, and I'm grateful, and my daughter's almost less than a week away from her second vaccine, and we're going to be visiting some people. And it, so it feels like There are some things that are good, but driving through small towns with all the Republicans who have never worn a mask or got a vaccine, I will be wearing a mask into some local gas station still. But see, this is my thing. I mean, I still do carry my mask around with me. I think it is extremely odd that restaurants are like, hey, put your mask on as we're taking you to your table. (laughs) But then when you're eating, take it off. We really don't care. And then when you leave again... After you've been breathing in all of this COVID air for the last hour and a half and drinking all these COVID cocktails, put your mask back on. Right, right, right. I'm like, none of that makes sense. So I do have a small act of protest, especially if I'm sitting on a patio. I do not put my mask back on when I leave. I think that's safe. And sometimes when I'm walking in, just to be petty, I'll pull my mask down below my chin because I realize that's like a mask fashion, apparently, to wear your mask like under your chin as if it's a beard. So I'm like, okay, I got it on. <laughs> so we called that the chin strap, but that would be, you know, football related. And, you know, I know you didn't play football. I did not. I mean, I also didn't play football. We still need to be mindful that COVID-19 is a reality and that there are some people who have not been vaccinated. 50% of American adults are now fully vaccinated, I think. 
Um, I think that number was getting closer to 60% toward the end of last week. I may be wrong on that, but there's a lot of progress being made as it relates to uh, vaccinations in the United States. What I'm seeing on your favorite news site is that fully vaccinated is 40% and at least one dose dose is 50%. Well, the president of the United States said on Instagram that 50% of American adults are now fully vaccinated. Okay. I trust the president more than the New York Times. Oh, well, that makes sense. Not at all. This president. You trust the president. This one here. (laughs) Uncle Joe ain't gonna lie to us. I'm sure Uncle Joe isn't going to lie to us. And... And he might. And he might. I just, like, I don't trust the government. You don't trust anyone, Katie. Stop clarifying it by saying you only trust, like, don't trust certain people. You don't trust anyone, not even yourself. It's no longer Mental Health Month, so we do not need to explore that with our audience. Actually, this is the last day of Mental Health Month. crap. (laughs) (laughs) Katie's like, I'm tired of celebrating. Fuck this. Gosh, where's June? No, I like May. It's the best month to be born in, and so I'm glad it's continuing, but I just wasn't looking forward to being psychoanalyzed on the show today. I wasn't analyzing you. I was just talking. Oh, okay. Did you feel analyzed? Well, no, I I don't think I felt analyzed. The problem is you know me too well, so then you just called out the truth. So I'm just... Called in. Right, okay. I don't call you out with the truth. I call you into the truth. Yes, yes. That's my mental health awareness Sometimes. month move. <laughs> Did you make peace with masturbation month? Jesus, why are we... <laughs> <laughs> because listeners loved it. We found... So next year... When we get to National Masturbation Month, we will also be saying happy birthday to Holy Shit Pot listener Piper from Nashville, whose birthday is May the 7th, which is also National Masturbation Day. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) I bet I know how she'll be celebrating. (laughs) Maybe we could get sponsored by some, like, toy company by then. Next announcement, the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All Saints and Aints is proud to announce that Reverend Montero... Put some respect on his name. Lil Nas X has been elevated to the position of pastor of music and worship arts. You heard that and if it's and it's holy. This coming Sunday, we'll be back in the sanctuary and Pastor X will be leading us in worship. The opening selection will be Montaro, Call Me By Your Name, and the invitation to receive Christ, that hymn, will be The Sun Goes Down. Watch the YouTube videos, stream the songs on Spotify, Apple, and Google Music, and be prepared to join in the Holy Chorus. Oh, I just got chills when you said the sun goes down. It's beautiful. It's, I mean, the video was, I mean, different, obviously, than Call Me By Your Name. But gosh, I just, like, I just felt what it feels like to to look back in your world when you were coming out and, like, to talk to your younger self. It was beautiful. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful. Those are the only words I can have for that. Yeah, he's making it big. I mean, he also made it big on SNL, not only for his his singing, which was fabulous, but also the fact that his pants split in the middle of calling by your name. I don't know if I would call it making it big. I don't know if I saw anything. <laughs> I mean, and I was looking too. I was like, oh, his little... <clears throat> okay. <laughs> his face was precious though. <laughs> He's like, oh... <laughs> It was, and I loved him on SNL because it looked so, like, precious. I think what I appreciate is, like, the music video, Call Me By Your Name, looked so, like, polished, and he was so confident, and he was so, uh, yeah, I'm pole dancing to hell, and I'm breaking the devil's neck. And when he was performing it live, Mm -hmm. he felt so innocent, like, oh, my God, a man is licking my neck on national television. Oh, my (laughs) God, I'm, like, smacking a man's ass as he grinds on his head in front of me. It's like, yes, you are. And it was precious. Now, did you hear the story? that like 
he had worked for two weeks with a set of dancers. And then at the last minute, one of them got COVID. And so he had to teach those, those dancers had only been working with him for 24 hours, less than 24 hours, but it was remarkable. I mean, like they were clearly good at what they did, but I thought it was impressive to learn that in 24 hours. It was, it was. That may explain some of the little, the more tense movements. It was an entirely new dance crew. He probably had gotten really comfortable with one tongue on his neck. (laughs) And then it was a new tongue. Um, (laughs) That's a lot of tongue. I mean, you have to know somebody a little bit for that to happen. Like maybe meet him for, maybe have coffee or something. Maybe have coffee before you lick my neck. Maybe not. The moments that I appreciated in the music video, uh, I appreciated the Pray the Gay Away sequence. It was so brief and he didn't give it a lot of time or energy, but there's a small lyric talking about how he tried to pray it away. And you get the scene of him sitting in his mm-hmm, bedroom with mm-hmm. the awful yellow wig, blonde wig. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> it's cute. That yellow wig was a mess. I could refuse to call it blonde. That was yellow. He goes for the bright colors. He does. There is no judgment, Lil Nas X. Just do you. That yellow wig was real bright. And... <laughs> I also just want to say, them with some grown-ass high schoolers. I'm like, what high school is this <laughs> right, with exactly. these grown adults right. all up and through here? He is also playing himself. I mean, so he, you know, I guess you have to make it look like that's the same age group. But yes, I mean, that's how TV does it, right? You've got like 30-year-olds. But they have technology now to make you look younger. I need to find that technology. <laughs> And he's like, can we apply that to my video? Right, exactly. Where do we find that? So shout out to Lil Nas X for continuing to release wonderful music. We can't wait for the full album. Are there any other announcements that we need to highlight today? I'm not aware of any. I did want to kind of do a toss back to our uh, conversation last week about Palestine. We were planning on doing a follow-up conversation today, but because Sam was prayed away, We are going to put that on pause and return to that another time. But there is something happening in the world right now. There's an Associated Press reporter who was fired for a pro-Palestinian college activism. So there was a new staffer at the Associated Press named Emily Wilder who was fired for biased, and I'm using air quotes, pro-Palestinian tweets. Emily Wilder was a Republican, is a Republican, and she started as an intern at the Associated Press on May the 3rd. 16 days later, she was a subject of cancel culture. And they said that her tweets showed a clear bias because she explicitly utilized the term Palestine when talking about Israel and Palestine. But she's Jewish. There's that part. Doesn't that even, that gives her even more credibility to talk about Palestine than even for me to talk about Palestine. Well, but that's the thing, right? So we don't have this same sort of approach when people do talk about Israel and they say Israel, 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 Israel. That's not bias. But when we talk about Palestine and we look at everything through the lens of Palestinian refugees, Palestinian immigrants, and those who live in the space that is being fought over, somehow that is bias. But I think it's actually just trying to balance out what's happening in that region of the country. Like, I'm trying to actually train myself to not say Israel-Palestine conflict because that still, in some ways, I think, prioritizes Israel when it really is a conflict between two groups of people and the people who are on the receiving end of the violence, nine times out of 10, are Palestinians. Right. So how would you say it? Because I would have said the problem with the Israel-Palestine conflict is that it seems like they both have equal agency in it. Like, that there's a conflict that they both have equal agency. It's more like... And I guess that's why I used the word Holocaust last week. That wasn't value neutral, Katie. That was very biased. You could never work at the Associated Press. No, I know. I know. But I mean, like, it is, it's, it is a political statement to even say the word Palestine. Absolutely. And, and once I was there, I mean, that's a, 
that's a conscious choice that I make every time. I like I know that when I say Palestine, it means something and some people are offended by it. Yep. But it's the truth. And and you can see it when you go there. You can see when you start in the Arab countries and then come around to Israel and you you realize how much water is in Israel and how it's being diverted from anyone else. I mean, and even in parts of Israel where the Palestinian parts don't have access to water, it's abundantly clear. And so we can talk about this another time. But I mean, like we boycott SodaStream, we boycott Sabra's hummus, even though we love both of those things. Once we heard they were part of the settlements, then we're like, nope, not going to do it. And so, yeah, I have some kind of feelings about it. I know. I do as well. Um, So ultimately, we're not going to revisit that entire conversation today because our sibling Sam isn't here. And we may revisit that again in our church announcements next week to kind of round out that conversation and bring a little bit more um, clarity to our own perspectives and maybe even give you a little invitation in the middle of the episode to figure out a different way to engage and or talk about what is happening to Palestinian people um, and what is happening to people in Israel and what the governments of both of those countries are doing to harm those who are supposed to be under their care. So today we are excited to have a special word of pod for the people of pod that is brought to you by Theolab Media's new podcast, Healing Jephthah's Daughters, hosted by the Reverend Dr. Lisa M. Weaver. If you haven't heard about it, Healing Jephthah's Daughters is a podcast for women and girls, really for all people who have any sort of traumatic history with their parents. Um, Mm -hmm. Lisa has approached this topic through the lens of the father-daughter relationship. And um, as we get feedback from listeners, we're finding that fathers are listening. Fathers are realizing that they are Jephthah. Fathers are realizing they have caused their daughters, their children, harm more broadly. The most recent couple of episodes featured a conversation between Lisa and two of her closest friends. And they just had a conversation about the text and about their lives and what it meant to live with this sort of traumatic history and live as a woman in the world. So for today's Word of Pod, we want you to hear that conversation. And we encourage you, as you're listening, to open up your podcast app of choice and go to Healing Jephthah's Daughters. There's a link to the podcast in the show notes and hit that subscribe button. There are about four or five more episodes in the first season of Healing Jephthah's Daughters. Then we'll take a brief break for the summer. And season two will premiere in August of 2021. That's Healing Jephthah's Daughters, Healing J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H apostrophe S Daughters. I'm glad we're here in the whole interview because this podcast is on fire. But when Reverend Dr. Lisa Weaver gets in a room with her friends, it exceeds anything that it's like a forest fire at that point. I don't, I don't know that that's a good um, analogy, but I mean, it is global warming. Global warming. Right? It is global warming. That is what it is. Um, <laughs> except that's bad. <laughs> that is bad. As our for, well, I guess forest fires are natural. Right. And, I'm talking about the natural forest fires. Oh, understood. The ones that clean and purify and yes. bring the forest back to life. I see yes. how you're doing it. Yes. Let exactly. me help you with your metaphor. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I was hearing that. I just couldn't bring the words to, to mind. Bless your heart. So let's take a quick break and we will be right back after this brief word from our sponsor. The Holy Shit Pod is brought to you by Theolab Media. Katie, tell them about Theolab. Theolab exists to transform how humans engage faith, spirituality, culture, and the world around them. Theolab believes candid conversations rooted in vulnerability, mutual respect, 
and authenticity, conversations that do not require unquestioning loyalty to one religious group or belief system. Can in- Hey, Katie. Hey, Katie. Yes? What does that mean? Unquestioning loyalty to one group, one belief system. What are you talking about? Well, you know, some religious um, entities require you to believe one thing, to not ask questions, that there are there are consistent things that you absolutely have to believe or you're out. And so we're not that. We like are all about the questions. Mm, okay, keep going if you want. All right. All of those things can inspire each of us to be more fully human. Fully human? What do you mean fully human? I'm not a dog, am I? <laughs> so I think that fully human is this integration of like heart, mind, spirit. It is living into, if you believe in God, what God created, who God created you to be. Um, if you don't believe in God, then somehow the universe has created you with unique gifts. Unfortunately, we are sometimes um, inhibited by societal expectations or, or these ideas that we don't ask questions. And so to be fully human is to live and take up space and embody a place in the world that where you feel alive. I'm totally sold. How can I give to this organization called Theolab Media? Well, that's a great question, Brandon. What you can do is go to theolabmedia.com and click on donate where you will be taken to our Patreon page where you can become a greeter, an usher, an armor bearer, or you know what? You don't have to live into these um, these constructed <laughs> roles. You can choose your own, can't you? No, that's not a thing. So this is why you should go there and look because sometimes we don't even remember all of the things you can be. I left out all the deacons and elders and trustees. You can do all of those things. We are the kind of church or community that enables people to use their gifts in all ways, the ones that are unique to them. Hmm. You know, I'll make you a black Baptist before it's all said and done, <laughs> but you can't do blackface. Right. That was one of the things that can't change. There are a couple other things that might be able to. That would be completely unacceptable. Black Baptist in your heart. That's right. Well, I think that's a good time to get back into the episode. As a reminder, today's Word of Pod for the People of Pod is brought to you by Healing Jephthah's Daughters. Listen in to Lisa M. Weaver as we embark on a journey toward healing, freedom, and wholeness. Hey. 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 <laughs> I'm so glad to see you. It's great to be here. It's great to see you too. Today, we have with us Reverend Adrian Thorne, who is a pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. And we also have with us my other good girlfriend, the Reverend Dion Boissier, who is the chaplain of the Church Center for the United Nations, as well as associate pastor of Mount Airy Baptist Church in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I am glad that y'all could join me on this podcast on today's episode. So it's Jephthah's daughter. It's Judges 11. Today, we're talking about this notion of obligation and duty and how that gets formed. You both have journeyed with me for decades with this. We've talked about this and molded around. What do you think about the story overall before we do a deep dive? So I'll, I'll dive. Um, I'll die first. I'll die first. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dee. So 
family dynamics is everything, right? Because when you have issues, hurt people hurt people. Come on now. It's that that I see a lot of that's coming out with that whole story. And then, you know, hopefully our, our folk will actually read the Bible because some of them just don't do that. Oh. If we actually read. Wait, are we not two minutes in and she messy? <laughs> now we're being girlfriends, ain't we? Right? Huh? We are. I'm just saying because we don't read it. Read it. I mean, if we really read it, then we would see all of that that's coming out. The other part, of course, it's um it's a personal story for me because I'm an only child, the only girl child and in a West Indian family. So the notion of just obeying and doing what you are told to do. Adrian, you can understand what I'm saying about that too. Mm-hmm. What country, Dion? Trinidad. Trinidad and Tobago. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so I think it's all of those things. Then the other thing is, I mean, there's some of those redemption stories, well, where there's none. What's the good news, right? That's, that's what we've been taught to look for as preachers. What's the good news? What's the good news? And ain't none. Well, ain't well, none. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, in the typical sense of, okay, when you preach, where's the hoop? Um, Well, where's the good news in that way? I mean, but there's a good news in in terms of us, right? In terms of sisterhood. There's something redeemable is what I'm saying, I think, out of it. And not something that is that sort of, quote unquote, typical good news. Dion, to your point of, you know, what's the good news? That gets back to biblical hermeneutics. Absolutely. Because there is no good news for women in this. Mm-hmm. You know, the daughter dies, the women lament, right? But if you look at this text and preach it from a white Western male, cis, het, heterosexual, patriarchal lens, the good news is that Jephthah is brought home and he wins the, uh, the war with the Ammonites and he is made head. So he's no longer put out. So that's the good news because he ends up in Hebrews 11 in the roll call of faith. But there's so much you have to override to get to that good news, you know? That's so true. This is Jephthah's daughter we talking about. I totally agree. And that override, I think, is what's killing us. So I'm in a training right now with Resma Menachem, who uh, wrote My Grandmother's Hands, which you know a lot of people are familiar with now. Yes. And he talks about the historical trauma that we're all carrying and the generational trauma that we're carrying. And I love that you pointed out that Jephthah... In an, in an earlier uh, episode, was himself a hurt person and that he came from a mother who po- was possibly a hurt person because she was a sex worker. Maybe hurt, maybe not. Maybe she was doing that by choice. But we know from the biblical tradition that women were usually in those positions because they didn't have options. So when you look at the generations of, of trauma, you have to override a lot of that stuff to say that, you know, Jephthah equals good news. Yeah, so that that sticks out for me. And and then we've got to search really hard and get to the end of the story almost before we find any quote unquote good news for the daughter. And even in that, you're still at the back of your neck is, but he's going to kill her in the end. It's like, great that she got two months with her girlfriends, but she about to die. And, and I know if I told this story to my daughter, who is a, an only child and a girl child, whose father is Trinidadian. I know she'd be like, there's no way in the heck I'd be going back. She'd be like, let me go hang out with my girlfriend so that she'd be out of there. There's no way. So I think she would say, well, how was that good news? Why, why would she go back? And she's a different de- generation from Dion. And I know when she was born, I remember her dad saying, oh, I can't wait till she grows up so she can make me breakfast. And I remember just feeling chilled because I thought, surely there is more to this child's life than growing up to be a servant of 
her dad. And breakfast, is that the highest? Is that the highest thing you can imagine her doing for you? You know? I'm stuck on, she, I can't wait till she grows up so she can make me breakfast. And then of course, I am determined that she will not. <laughs> ever. I understood what he was saying. I don't condone it, but I definitely understand. And I understand why, as a West Indian man, he was saying it too. It's cultural and also individual. You know, you eat breakfast like a king. My grandmother used to say this all the time. You, you know, you eat breakfast like a king, lunch um, like a like a prince, and and supper like a pauper. Right? That kind of that kind of thing. That's the way you kind of do it. And so this this notion being proud that my daughter would be a good cook would be proud that my daughter would be able to do these things well. I mean, don't get me wrong, because if she became a brain surgeon, he'd be just as proud and be boasting about her either way. But this notion that my daughter can do all these things and be the wife that, you know, she's supposed to. Yeah, and that's all fine and good that she was a brain surgeon. But after they read her obituary and find out she was a brain surgeon and she was an A student and she married this person and she had these children and she traveled here and traveled there. The last thing anybody's going to say about her is girl, a funeral home did a good job on her. She looks sleep. Girl, that's why we wake up dead every day, living under expectations that other people set. Expectations are killing us. Now, we, we clean in this morning thing, you know, but you remember when I told you all about the five, the five women every, every man must have. A wife, a woman, a gal, and a thing. <laughs> I told you all about Wait, run that back? A wife, a woman, a gal. And a thing. That's only four. A wife, a woman, a gal, and a four. Four women that every man of us have. All right? Yeah, see, I did not expect this, but I appreciate the fact that Dion's the one that's been messy, and it's not even 15 minutes in. I'm sorry. No, 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 but we like messy. It's okay. <laughs> you know, if, if she were a brain surgeon, you know, he'd be proud of that too, but that she can do both. But if she's a brain surgeon, she's really not going to have a whole lot of time to cook. And so the expectation, the brain surgeon who's also expected to come home, do the laundry, cook, mm -hmm, pick up the kids, mm -hmm. and then she ends up dying. Expectations are killing us. They are killing us. And so that wife, mother, galanting is a lot. And there's not an equivalent for men, right? There's the warrior. Mm -hmm. And you get to decide what happens to this little girl as she comes out of the door trying to be all those things for her dad. Because I guess there's no mother there. So what is she? Right? Is she the wife, the mother, the gal, and the ting? And, and definitely a ting because he can just dispose of her with no consequence. I don't want to make it sound like I don't regard or respect the ability to make my dad breakfast or, you know, for my, my kid to do that for her dad. I think I'm just um, pushing against the expectation and, and what sometimes can seem like a lack of mutuality. Um, it is wonderful to know how to cook. And it is wonderful to go home and see my parents and to, and to say, I'm going to do this for them because I love them. Like this is an expression. Um, but, you know, I was raised by a dad who um, had three, there's three daughters and one son. And he and my mom both insisted that we all know how to do everything. My dad is like, I will not raise ignorant daughters. I will not raise daughters who will be taken advantage of because they don't know stuff. So you will know how to change a tire. You will know how to change the oil. And my brother, you will know how to iron. You will know how to cook and do your own laundry um, because you might not be with someone who can take care of you. And that shouldn't be the expectation anyway. You should be able to take care of yourself. And so to know how to do those things 
and to be able to offer them to a parent as opposed to this is what you do because you have these genitalia or this is what you do because you are this sort of a child. Um, there's, an, there's an ownership and a property sort of energy to that that I think um, dismisses the humanity of, of who we are. My papa, my great-grandfather was the one who ended up raising mostly all of the children, right? Having help to come and raise them and whatnot. So he owned the property and that land then became, for, as far as he was concerned, his children's home. So that was the family home. But everybody owned equally. But it was very clear, though, with the, with the daughters, and this was interesting, that they were to be the ones to keep the house because the sons, as far as he was concerned, they could go out and they could get their own. But the daughters, he needed to make sure that they were provided for. So the family home belonged to them. They all had it. And he did not want them to separate. So my grandfather and my grandmother, everybody had their room. And literally when they got married, they were all in that room. So you have whole families living in one room because Papa said we were all to stay together. So in the household, there were expectations. Women ate last. We made the plates for everybody. Men ate, children ate, and then we ate. I, I always remember seeing my grandmother. Whatever was left, she would scrounge together and put on her plate. She sat there and, because everybody else ate first. You understand? And that was how we were conditioned. And that was sort of how it went. That's the expectation. Then how, how do you see those expectations play out in your own life as an adult. You know, sometimes you look at someone's spouse and it's like, oh my God, he married his mother. But it's not just in looks, but behavior patterns, right? We bring those in, what you do, what you don't do. Okay, how do you feel about the fact that she died, JD, let's call her JD, doing what she was supposed to do? This is the expectation. And yet the expectation cost her her life. Right. But she died doing what she was supposed to do, what was expected of her. Well, then that's the point, I think. I feel like that then says to us, women are expected to sacrifice. And when Dr. Norton said, Jephthah knew, when he made that promise to God, he knew. So then I've been wrestling with that this week, you know, on the subway platform going. So he made a deal with God and said, I'm going to sacrifice my daughter and you're going to do this for me. He made a calculation and, and sacrificed her and he knew it. That is, that's incredibly troubling. But when I think about the way this society, this society hates women. This society hates girls. They hate our power. They hate the ability we have to, to give life and they cannot harness that and they cannot control that. And they hate our pleasure. They hate our sexuality. I mean, the whole duality between the mind and the body and men and women and the earthly and the heavenly, all of that crap that is in the, in the water and the air of the church that aligns them with empire and aligns them with capitalism and patriarchy and misogyny. There is, so it makes sense. It makes sense that Jephthah would make this calculation because girls don't matter. They're expendable. They are. They are needed for certain things, but they are expendable. He knew what he was doing. Yes. God, I'm going to give you her. You let me win. 
the question underneath that is, what was the motivation for his calculation? And how was his calculation formed? He got sacrificed too. He did. And you're right, Adrian. He got sacrificed too. I need you to unpack that because people keep saying that and I keep hearing it and I'm, I'm not resistant to it, but I think I'm so focused on how did he get sacrificed? He get to go back home and be head. He get incorporated back into the community. As a child though, Lisa, he's still walking with that wound. And I want to forget that because I want to be mad at him. Thank you, y'all. Y'all going to keep me honest and accountable. Okay. And his mama got put out the house too. So think about boys and their mamas. Exactly. She was never welcomed back, right? She was shunned. Think about women in the Bible who made their living by selling their bodies for sex and what would fall on him because of that. And then his dad comes for him. Like think of all the kids who sit at home waiting for the dads to come, right? You know, my dad is a, is a rock star and he's going to come and get me one day. My dad is a, is a prince and he's going to come and get me one day. And then daddy comes and he gets Jephthah and takes him to the castle, right? See, my dad was a king. My dad is, my dad's the man. And then your brothers say, you got to go. And that, the man says, doesn't say anything. That's like double devastating. I think that's double traumatizing. I mean, but to your point about the expendability of girls, right? Like women are expendable. You serve a function. And when that function is over, I'm done with you until I need you again. So right, generally society has a script for women. There are expectations of women that are set at, at home and in church. And I mean, like where are all the places, first of all, that we even get these expectations? Jephthah somehow had an expectation that he was supposed to make a vow. He internalized an expectation that he was supposed to make a vow and she had internalized the expectation of her response to his winning, like what she was supposed to do. I'm thinking about from a contemporary context, what are all the places in which women learn what the expectation is? And implicitly and explicitly, because sometimes it is communicated. There are signs and billboards. This is what you need to do do to look sexy. This is what you need to do to keep your man. This is what you need to be a boss, to be there. There are a lot of, a lot of tropes that I think are just in the air that we breathe. So as you, like, like with racism, you know, we learn patriarchy, we learn misogyny. I mean, we all know that some of the worst um, haters of women are other women. And they learn that stuff in church. They learn that stuff from the Bible. I'm, I'm reading, you know, again ahead. But it's, what the lament is for JD is they wept because she would never marry and she was a virgin. Yes. Right? That's the worst thing, to never marry and to be a virgin. You know, my daughter, when she was three years old, walked into our kitchen one morning or afternoon and fainted, like did this faint, fake faint on the floor. Three years old, like this. Oh. And she was laying there (laughs) and I said, what are you doing? And she literally said, I'm waiting for my prince to come and save me. Oh my. And I screamed, get up off the floor and save yourself. She's three, right? She's looking at me like I'm crazy because I'm thinking, oh my God, I have worked so hard, like not to read those stupid fairy tales, to question what do you think about this princess that's laying here and some guy just shows up and kisses her? And she's like, that's crazy. What do you think about fathers who make these vows to the kingdom that if you come and figure and help me figure out why my daughter's shoes are worn out, you know, the princesses that go dancing, you can have your choice of daughters. So I said to her, someone came and knocked on our door and said to your dad, I want her. She's like, 
that's crazy. I said, but these are the stories we're reading to our kids who think that guys get to choose them. And if I don't get chosen, for the prom or to marry, then there's something wrong with me. No, there's something wrong with this messed up culture that says you've got to marry and not be a virgin in order to meet the expectation. And and there are women, I know women in their 50s, in their 60s, who are lamenting this thing that we have been crazily fed. And and it ties, I think, to uh, Black Lives Matter and even George Floyd, this notion that our worth is tied to the expectation. Our value, you know, is only, we're only valuable if we are black in this particular way. Well, you know, George Floyd wouldn't have gotten killed if he had met the expectation, if he had just conformed, if he had just been still, if he had just not taken these drugs or his heart, you know, you are somehow defective. He was not defective and JD was not defective. And women are not defective if they don't marry and if they don't have children, but we have twisted, um, you know, the roles for black people, indigenous and people of color and for women and girls to the point where they think they are defective and know you came perfect, right? In your mother's womb, perfectly formed. You don't have to hit this mark or do this thing. You're already good. But so, so let me say this and I, you know, I'm again, going to be the one throwing a wrench in the program. I'm sorry. That's all right. I'm doing a lot of counseling with women who are still alone. So I'm, I'm just going to go there because we're girlfriends. I, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the times when people have said a lot of those things, oh, you're just, you're fine this way. And it's not that I don't agree with you because I do. And I think that. But the fact is, either y'all been married already or going home to be somebody with somebody or you're partnered already, you've had the experience and now whatever with it. Or you're still married and you're telling someone, don't you worry. You don't have to this and you don't have to that. But I got to go, girl, because um, my husband is coming home. Well, I got to, girl, I got to, you know, or I have children and I have to, you don't don't worry about it. If you don't have children, it's fine. You're a mother to the community, you know? I mean, so, yes, you're absolutely right. And when you do read those fairy tales, Adrian, they are absurd. When you actually, you know, like go back and you like really read it like, wait a minute, this is just not, this is not okay, <laughs> right? And on any level, it's not okay when you really read that. But when I grew up, you know, I never wanted to be, you know, Cinderella or anything, literally. But I did, I, I mean, Rapunzel was my girl, right? Like I'm going to let down my hair and someone's going to come and, you know, come and save you. I wanted to be Rapunzel. I, I don't want to. She would be Rapunzel with her fabulous hair. Totally. Dion has the Rapunzel hair. But yeah, of course. Dion has Rapunzel hair. But you are kind. I'm saying that to say that I do think that there's, you know, there's, there's something that's innate with us. And I think it's beyond, uh, you know, it, it sort of manifests with those, the societal expectations. But I think there's, it's a deeper a longing to not want to be alone. I think it's a deeper longing for people just not wanting to be alone. Right. And the way that we have sort of um, crafted that not being alone is that you've got to, it has to come in this particular package. Like you said, Adrian, right? Like it has to be that you've got to be married or you've got to be partnered in this way and you've got to this and you've got to have children this way and you've got to, you know, and so we do have to reevaluate sort of how those things come up 
and what things long, you know, but there is still a deep longing. Right. And I agree with that, Dion. I just want to say, I don't want to say to people, don't worry that you're not married or don't worry that you don't have children, but you deserve to live even if that doesn't happen. So like if I turn that corner, it's like, even if she had never married or didn't have children, or if we don't marry or don't have children, we still get to live. And and I think that's the thing with George Floyd. Even if he had passed the $20 bill, he still deserved to live, you know? Absolutely. That's where I, I agree with you in that she should not have had to die. That, th- there's where, th- this is the thing, right? So wh- where does that come up that she had to be sacrificed? That whatever child, whatever girl child he would have encountered had to die. And it was because of his full self that said, oh, I am going, I have to, um, to live out this, this vow. Right. That's so. So when you go to expectations, I want to go there for a second in terms of what good girls do. You know, therapy is holy. I'm just saying therapy is holy. Just let me just say that because I'm realizing a whole lot about myself and about this whole notion of being a good girl and what the good girls are expected to do, because that is what you are told. It's a particular way that you're supposed to dress. Good girls dress a particular way. Good girls have your hair done a particular way. And the church does that. The church reinforces that one for sure. You know, and the way that good girls speak a particular kind of way. Good girls, you know, you don't have foul language come from your lips. (laughs) You know, so good girls don't cuss. Keep your knees closed, your dress down. Oh, yes. And you keep those knees together and those dresses down. That's part of it. That's at the top of the list, right? Of course. Don't be bringing no babies home. Right. And then you hit a certain age like I did when my parents are like, so when are we going to get some grandbabies? I was like, I thought I, I thought you, you were I was supposed to get married first. And they're like, girl, we ain't got, you know, basically they're like, we ain't got time for that. We need some grandbabies. And I'm like, when did that s- switch flip? Right. But I also want to lay alongside the good girl, the theology of the nasty girl that I think we could have like Hillary Clinton to thank for, because I think that's a very helpful motif. And I love seeing uh, women saying proudly that I'm a nasty girl, like I'm thinking about myself and I'm thinking about my health and not to be mean and not to disregard or disrespect our elders, our parents, our church, our institutions, but to lay that alongside of and interrogate the good girl. So I, I have to say to, you know, you know, someone else gave. So here's I have this issue with that. Right. So I do like that. You know, the issue with the nasty girl thing. But I don't like I don't like who named it. So I don't want to claim that. I just I really have a problem with it. So in, in other words, I love the juxtaposition of the good girl and the nasty girl. But I don't like it because I don't like who made that definition of the nasty girl. So I don't want to be a nasty girl. Who made it? That was Trump. Who said it about her? I see. She's a nasty woman. She's just nasty. You know? And I, so for me, I always associate it not with her, but with him. Isn't there a book like that? Like the good girls and the bad girls of the Bible? Reverend Barbara Essex, my uh, pastoral care professor at seminary. That's right. Like the Rahabs of the world, you know? I think she was the fiercest negotiator out there. I mean, like, you go, I'm going to take care. And a sex worker, the Bible says, right? Yes. So she owned her pleasure. That's right. And again, we don't talk about those things 
The Shulamite woman is a shero for me. In Renita Weems' book, when she talks about what matters most, this woman got to what matters most. And what matters most is what she desired, who she wanted to be, and that she had no problem talking about it. And we then spiritualize all of the things. To get back to your question, Lisa, this notion of what good girls do. And we, you know, we've, we, we were, we've been taught to sort of spiritualize those things. Make them, you know, we've got to pray about everything. You don't make any decisions without praying about anything. And then you don't move on any decisions because until you know what God wants you to do, you do this. And God, and then look, but they tell you what God wants you to do. God wants you to be a good girl and sort of prescribes for you. The men prescribe it, right? The men prescribe for you what then a good girl wants. Mm Mm-hmm. God didn't ask Jephthah to sacrifice his daughter. I mean, to go back to expectations, like you said, he just made that stuff up. Exactly. You just made that up. You just made that up. Ain't nobody ask you to kill your daughter. Fool. And that's part of the, that, you know, and that, that's a, it's a historic comparison. Like Isaac gets saved, but Jephthah's daughter doesn't. God invited Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a test, but God didn't say anything to Jephthah, right? So this whole thing about good girls and expectations, if we just flip that almost uncritically, it's as if we don't have any expectations of bad girls because they just do what they want to do, right? They they don't conform. That's why they bad. But isn't that what agency is? So why is it bad for women to have their own agency? Because you can't be controlled and the whole, you know, God and men are on the same level. I remember being in, in seminary and them talking about the hierarchy. There's God and then there's men. Then there's women there's children and there's animals. And we're never, we were never thought to be on the same level. We're not the theological equal. You can't have a loving relationship with a woman because she's not your intellectual equal. You can only have true, um, I think it's agape love and not phileos love, but you can only have it with a man because she's just the vessel through which the children come through. She's just a thing. Again, utilitarianism, yep. functionalism, right? right? right. So, how have you seen this show up in your ministry settings? Yeah, so, I mean, and Dion, I think, can probably speak even more powerfully to this, but it's like, what do you do in a church where you are the, the leader? Or even in your work setting, Dion, when you are the leader and you come with something and people are like, well, who are you? I have literally had people in my church say to me, who do you think? You are. What? And I'm like, I think I'm your pastor. And I've had people ask me, well, why do you get to say, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I serve in a denomination where, you know, our polity is, um, we have parity of office. So we don't have the hierarchy. I think that is real in the Baptist tradition, which is, you know, I'm not the the final word, the last word, the authority. You know, I check with people. I don't make moves by myself. But even, you know, with my theological background, when I say, well, you know, this is what the polity says, or this is what the Bible says, or this is my understanding of how, of a way forward, like the disrespect, right? The disregard that people would come out of their faces to say, who do you think you are? But Adrian, what is it? Is it that you don't meet their expectations of a pastor because of who Well, I'm female. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm female. So my predecessor, who was uh, the first black male who was installed in my church, he was here for 20 years. And while, you know, there's, there's all kinds of feelings, um, but he was by and large loved as a, as a human being. And I am certain that there are things that have been said to me 
that would never, that people would never have said to him. Absolutely. The way that I'm questioned, the way that I'm, oh, you might want to think about doing this. Oh, might I? <laughs> right? And, and, it's, and it's tone and it's mm-hmm. attitude and, oh, you know, you really don't have to do such and such. I have drafted an agenda for your meeting. For your meeting. For your meeting. Maybe, maybe you'd like to follow this. Oh, might I? And, and, and it, what I'm also trying to say is I'm not above being helped, right? I love collaboration. I'm a collaborative leader. I'm talking about tone. I'm talking about the little girl, you, you don't really know what you're doing. And it's women, right? Um, it's women who come and kind of want to check you. I'm not saying that men don't do it, but in my experience in the, in the churches I've served in, and I'm, I'm talking across several um, you know, different states, people want to help you. You know, you need help. That sounds like infantilization. I think it does. But I think like white body supremacy, we learn these lessons like early on. And, you know, we're taught that um, women are not as capable and that they're not as smart and that they shouldn't be leaders. I mean, I had an older woman in my church, like literally do this, like pointing at her eyes and pointing at my, and she said, I'm watching you. And I remember the chill that went through my body because I was like watching me. Like, what, why do I need to be watched? I think the other thing, you know, in terms of expectation that I'm thinking of, because, you know, I'm, I am separated and going through a divorce. And, and so just wondering about like the rest of my life. Like, so what does relationship or partnership look like? And we know men who are single and in the church who do whatever they want. But if you're a woman in the church, there are people watching you. Because you're a woman. My, my, my. And then a double watch if you're a mother, right? So I have a minor child and I'm about to be a single mom. And I'm sure people are watching. What is she doing? How is she conducting her, her legs closed and her dress pulled down? But ain't nobody doing that for men. I know I have worked with men in the church who have brought girl. Oh, this is the this is the love of my life. next month is a this is the love of my oh okay and then six months later I mean how many women are you gonna traipse through here and introduce to the church right and doing all kinds of whatever so the expectations are very different and people want to clock you surveil you clock you and you're right men get to do things that women cannot. And if men and women do the same thing, just as in the legal system, I don't call it a justice system because there's very little justice in it, but in the legal system, there is not parity of consequence. So a woman can do the same thing. She will be penalized far more greatly. Mm. Or even the converse. Look, before I went down this leg of my vocational journey, right, when I still was applying to churches, and this fairly well-known pastor said to me, he said, well, Weaver, you know why you don't have a church? Because you ain't screwing nobody. He said, if you would just give some up, you would get a church. Jesus. And his wife said, that's right. You would. Oh, no. Wait, you never told me that. Oh, yes. Weaver, you don't have a church just because you, you ain't giving none up. Oh, my Lord. If you would give some up, you'd have, you'd have a church tomorrow. And Weaver, it's a shame. And you preach better than half the men, but you still can't get a church. I said, the last time I heard the church belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, Amen. Uh, and that the church was not to be given as a reward. But see, these are men. We going down a whole nother rabbit hole about church politics, right? The, 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 the sexual politics, right? The, 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 the lack of parity. And the expendability of women and the utilitarian nature of women. You are here 
for us. I said, well, you know what? I guess I'll never be a pastor. And guess what? I left New York and I never got called to a church. I think we need to stay here for a minute. I think, too, that there's a sick notion because I think it's demented. There's something just really, really wrong. And not just because we're thinking women of faith, because this is when you said, I think there's also a thing um, that we're not just women. We are women. We're thinking women of faith because there would be a very different notion that there are women who literally are pawns and they will do whatever they need to do or feel like they need to do in order to get position, to get power. They're not necessarily thinking they will not push back. They will not do any of those things. And some of them will be elevated and some of them will still not be. and will be very fine with not being. But my, I, I think we get as much pushback as we are getting because we are thinking women of faith. So this notion, this question of who do you think you are is exactly because I have I have laid out for you, I am operating in who I know I am to be. It's not about who I think I am. It's who I know I I am am. to be. Amen. And I'm moving in that, that you're getting challenged in the way that we are getting challenged. Absolutely. And let me just say um, for for our listeners, let me just say we are not saying that every woman who has been called to a pastorate has slept her way there. We are not saying that. No, 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 no. no. We need to put that out there. But what we are saying, what we are talking about here is this way, the way in which there are expectations in the church realm which we're talking about now. And I would argue that there are analogs in the business world. Oh, for sure. Right? Not every woman who is professional has slept her way to the top. We are not saying that. But what we are saying is that the that that cultures, plural, society, church, family, there are ways in which that women are socialized and we internalize these expectations, these things that we're supposed to do, right? This this the transactional nature of the female body. If you do this, then you get that. If you don't do this, there's a consequence for that. And, and so what we're, what we're talking about is the ways in which our experiences, either individually mine, you know, or, or those we know, where, where, oh, if you would just do this. Right. Right. I'm like, Satan, get thee behind me. If you would just do. Right. I'm, I'm not available for 30 shekels. Or if I have done or said a thing to you and you call me on it, you need to chill. You're just overreacting. You know, so I had an older pastor in the church say something. I was at a gala dressed as an, in a dress. Oh, what are you doing later tonight? I'm sorry. His wife is at the event. She wasn't in that space. And I said to people in my church, because you do that whole thing where you go, did, did I just hear what I, what I, right? So then I had to email and say, you know, that, that was not comfortable. I have a, I have a daughter. I just can't not, I cannot be silent. And then there's the whole, oh, you know, you're blowing everything out of proportion, right? Because people don't want to be called on their inappropriate expectation. And it's so, again, in the air and in the water. And, and then the women are saying, oh, that's just so-and-so being so-and-so. The whole boys will be boys. Right? Jephthah sacrifices his daughter. That's just what warriors do. And then people are like, okay. That's just what Justice Kavanaugh, he was just a boy. He was just a boy. Right? And I think it is, it has been ingrained in us, particularly if culture says this is the way that it should be or how it is supposed to be. I'll never forget um, growing up, 
and my cousins. And we all grew up like sisters and brothers because we were all year, uh, one year apart. And um, growing up with my cousins in Trinidad. And, you know, when we were getting that preteen teenager, when you sort of liking boys and liking girls and having girlfriends and all of these kinds of things. And, you know, my cousins, the elder ones would say to me, you could lime with you and hang and, and, and laugh and everything with you, but we can't marry girls like you, Dion. And they were basically talking about not only our complexion, because literally they told me that I'm too dark to be, you know, for me to marry you because I have to, I have to think about my children and we have to think about how in society we have to advance. So not only because of my complexion, but also because you ask too many questions. You are just too much. You're too much. I'm just too much. So it's not just you're too dark, <laughs> but you talk too much. You know what I mean? So there, there's this, this notion of, but we can hang out, lime with you. We can lime and lay with you. We can party with you. We can do all of that with you. You can even be my best friend, but we can't take you home to mom because you are not the kind of woman that we have to marry. Ugh. And so advocating for the girls, for the Chibak girls, particularly when we were talking about them, these girls literally, and remember, they were, they were abducted because they actually, the audacity of them to think that girls could be educated, right? Because girls are not supposed to be educated. Why? Because they're only going to, they don't need to be educated. They need to be taught how to rear children. And how to keep a house. That's all you need to know, right? So over the years that they've been missing, seven years now, and over the years that they have been missing, you've seen boys be abducted actually this past year. And they were found like that. They were found within days. But the women, the girls, were talking about, you know, 276 of them being uh, originally abducted. Then, you know, 107 of them, uh, 100 and plus of them, I think it's 107 of them being uh, 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 found. And then we're, we're talking about negotiating. It's 112 of them still missing. But my point, though, is to say that they're expendable. And now the government is saying that we, we, should, know, we should give up the fight looking for them because now they have become property of Boko Haram. Right. Because as wives, we belong to our husbands. You understand? And that's biblical, too. Right. The rape that happens. And then she gets to be your wife. You rape her and then she's yours. OK, let's shift the conversation a bit. One of the things that ires me is that all too often we don't have empathy until we are in someone else's shoes. That there is a lack of understanding, compassion, sympathy that people will brush by, disregard, dismiss, treat lightly until it happens to you. We are taught and formed that we are to make sure that everybody is okay, even if it kills us. Right. And so how do we how do we dislodge ourselves from that? I remember I, clearly, as clearly as I'm sitting here looking at you two beautiful women. I remember becoming physically sick where I, I, I couldn't do this dance anymore with my Jephthah, right? I couldn't do this. I, I called him up. Let's go to lunch. Okay. I took him to a diner that no longer exists in the Bronx, Baychester Diner. I said, 
I need to forgive you and let you go. And his response was, I needed to hear that. That was the only admission of guilt I will ever get from my father. Let me be clear. I needed to hear that. And my response was, I know you did. And I need to let you go because it's killing me. And it literally was. I was physically sick and psycho-emotional dis-ease shows up in my stomach. And so basically, (laughs) I took him to lunch to divorce him, right? And two words that I use all the time to reposition and reorient. And I had to reposition him. I said, if I keep him where he is, if I keep fulfilling his expectations of how I am supposed to comport to keep the peace and not, you know, I'm supposed to be the guy, I'm not supposed to. That was killing me. mm -mm, No, 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 sir. And, and said, this is what I need. This, this, we, can, we can move forward in this manner. And he, okay, that's fine. No, it didn't happen. But I am no longer sick. I am no longer at the edge of death, living out of an expectation that I did not set. You know, for me, it took me getting physically sick to say, I got to do something differently, right? Because we are concerned about the consequences. But if I reorient this person and reposition this person, what will happen? Well, we could sit here and talk about it and make a list of what happened. What happened if you don't, girl? Because right now it's killing you. And girl, you don't, you don't look good. You're, like, you know, as Claudette Copeland would say, baby, your weave is crooked and, you, and your stockings are twisted. And, you know, <laughs> girl, that, that, that dress and that baby, something wrong. Right? Like, like, right, there's a way. And we think we're keeping it together. And we look like Charlene coming <laughs> to church. Now, nah, how y'all doing? <laughs> baby, I'm all right. But you're, you're not, not doing, doing too, too well, well, baby. Baby, we need to go take you on a trip. Let's go away for a couple of days. Because, what's baby, girl, what's going on? Girl. Girl. And we're not in that verse, Lisa, but that's where girlfriends come in. And I think there's the admission. You know, it's the admission. It's someone like Claudette Copeland saying, girl, your wig is on crooked, right? Because it is so hard to say that your dad is not serving you well, right? Uh, You've grown up in that space and you love this person. Um, even if that person is, is harmful, you know, they, you know, the research shows that kids love parents, even parents who abuse them, because this is what we know. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think it does take something sort of dramatic. I mean, I think like you, I got to a place also where calling home to talk with my parents, I just dreaded getting on the phone with my dad. I just prayed my mom would answer and not my dad, because there was always a, when are you going back to school? When are you going to stop? dancing? When are you going to get a real job? And I just had to say to him, because like you, just mentally, I think more for me, it was just this dread. I said, listen, we've been doing this for a decade, right? And here's how this is going to go. We're not talking about me going back to college anymore. If you want me to call home, this has got to stop. Or I can't come home. I can't call home because I can't keep doing this. I can't keep working to make you proud of me. I'm proud of me. And it is making me mentally and emotionally sick trying to do something that's going to make you say I'm, I'm proud. So we got to find something else to talk about or we're not going to be able to talk. And then I got the, I was just trying to help. You know, I was, I was, you know, the whole martyr thing. And I'm like, okay, are you done? <laughs> And then, and, and I think it does take getting to the edge. You know, Archie Smith, my pastoral care professor said, you know, people don't usually change because they just wake up one morning and decide to change. He said, you're usually on the edge of a cliff and the choice is jump or deal with the, the thing that's chasing you behind. And he says, it's only when that thing is chasing you 
that you jump into change. Right. And that's most people. But should we have to get there where we are physically sick, where we like dread? Well, I think your point, I think girlfriends help us. It's like, girl, take my hand. Let me show you. I love you. Exactly. Then the other thing is, how, how have I carried that over into my relationships? Girl, the most frightening revelation I had was when I realized that my father is so much like 45. I said, Jesus, he don't listen. Like you talk, he'll talk over you. He'll cut you off. And, and I said, oh, that's why I'm triggered. I said, oh no, girl, I'm gonna break all of my giver blanks. And looking back at my own dating past, I was like, oh, he was just like him, right? Like I see people that I've dated that were just like, my father was like, oh, that's why that didn't work. Okay, that, that makes it right. Like I've been able to do that work. Oh my God, I so appreciated that conversation. I have listened to it at least 15 times. And every time I hear something new and something different, as we round out today's episode, Karen, what might our invitations be for the people? There were so many amazing things that these women talked about and so many challenges that women face from parenting to work to what we see in the media and all these expectations that are around us. I think what I was struck by the most is the community that they had found, um, that they have created. So my invitation to women is to find your people, to find people who will lift you up, to find people to hold you strong when the world and the expectations are are weighing down too heavy. And I think, um, you know what? I mean, that's what Jephthah's daughter had to bring her life before she didn't have life. But I think that that is key. It is essential for women in the world today. Absolutely. I think my invitation is to any male listeners who may have uh, heard that content and heard it in a different way to not send to yourself, but to figure out what it looks like to descend to yourself and descend to your voice and your perspective. And that doesn't mean that you're silent. Sometimes it actually means you have things to say. Maybe it's an apology to your daughter mm-hmm. because maybe an apology is the first step you take on your own journey to healing, freedom, and wholeness. Maybe the apology is the first step that your daughter will be able to take on her journey, not because her healing is contingent on your apology, but because maybe she's waiting on you to acknowledge that you have harmed her. I invite you to shift your pattern of behavior. I would say that women need to do that as well. Mom, uh, mom, Moms need to do that as well. I mean... Katie's like, my mama need to listen. My mama <laughs> need to change. Please change, mama. That's true. But I was, but I'm even talking about myself. I mean, like Jordan will call me out on things that, that um, she sees that are antithetical to, to how she experiences me or how I've raised her in the world because there's just stuff that's ingrained. And so I I end up apologizing too. And I end up saying, you know what? You have just taught me something. And so that's been an important part of our relationship. Well, I think the most fitting departure since you're here, Lisa, why don't you give us an invitation as well? First, what does it mean for something to not serve you well? If there is anything in your life that keeps you from fully showing up as your authentic, healthy, whole self, that thing is not serving you well. Second, who do you need to reposition? What relationships do you need to reorient? To shift. As a Christian, I do not believe that you throw people away or cut them off because God does not throw us away. However, 
Just like some things in your life may not serve you well, sometimes there are people in your life who do not contribute to you being your best self. Sometimes you need to reposition people in your life, and sometimes you need to orient some relationships. Just because someone was once up close and personal in your life doesn't mean that they have to remain there. Everyone cannot go with you, and everyone cannot grow with you. Sometimes relationships need to be reoriented for your well-being, and that's okay. Reposition and reorient with grace and charity and love, because everyone needs it. How does what we discussed about expectations show up in your life and your work? How you relate to your boss, the schools you choose, how you advocate for yourself in public settings. Have expectations caused you to give away your power or do you exercise your agency to advocate for yourself and others? Amen and Ashe. Thank you so much, Lisa. So now, friends, we're almost done with today's episode. But before we go, do us a solid. This is a word of mouth podcast. So please share this episode or another one of your favorites with a friend or a family member. Also, if you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. There are a lot more of you listening on Apple Podcasts and there are ratings. We see the stats. So we're talking to you. Yes, you, the person who loves this podcast enough to still be listening at this point. Open that Apple podcast right now and leave us a review. And as always, if you have questions, concerns, or announcements of your own, send an email to holyshit at feelatmedia.com. We always love hearing from you, our listeners. That's why we do this, for the conversation. We'll be back next week, and the gang will all be here, including Pastor Sam. Until then... Keep your head up, fam. Peace.